This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, East Sanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hszc.org. Good morning, everyone. So, welcome to everyone, our puppies and our old people and new folks. And uh, My name is Stephen, and I'll, I'll be sharing with you today. It's always a pleasure to be here. Um, and, and I was just here a few weeks ago, so some of you may have had just about enough of me, but, but uh, I'm here whenever, whenever the call comes. I'll, I will always be here. Um, so what I've been thinking about a lot um, is sort of the, the for me, and, and maybe for others, sort of what's the, what's the foundation here? You know, we live, we're living in a world, or I am at least, I won't speak for you, that feels fairly chaotic, um, that feels fairly angry, that feels... Uh, you know, lots of stuff going on. And I manage somehow to move through life, I think, with some compassion and some wisdom because I have a spiritual practice that allows me to do that. And, and, uh, and so as this week was one of the more um, uh, interesting or disastrous weeks, depending on, on your point of view, uh, or perhaps both, uh, I was thinking a lot this week about, so what is it that brings me um, some capacity to, um, someone just said I have a lot of patience, and, and uh, I, think, I think it's um, a certain meditative pose that I have when I'm on the seated and when I go from here, um, taking the mind of Zazen with me, I try. Um, and so where does all that come from? And so I was doing some reading um, and studying, and, and of course I finally entered <laughs> at my ancient age, I finally in, entered a certain age where I, I, now I don't have to read because I can listen to blogs and, and read books online. It's very nice. Um, writing on Bard or getting ready to go to sleep at night and, and uh, not having to exhaust myself turning a page. I can just listen. It's, it's a whole new thing. But um, So I've been listening um, and, and reading, actually, and talking to folks about um, the four foundations of mindfulness. And sort of for me, I was taking a look at what are the basics of this practice that um, that that I'm dedicated to, and and most of you in this room are curious about, or dedicated to, or um, have various amounts of, of um, uh, attraction to, so to speak. Well, not we wouldn't be attracted. Um, very amounts of experience with. There you go. Um, so a few years ago, I, I used the four foundations of mindfulness as the basis for a retreat I offered at Tassajara, um, and the immediate response of that. I've, um, was that two of the old doyans of Tassajara came up to me and in that wonderful breathy voice, breathless voice that they get when they're trying to be helpful, <clears throat> I think, um, they said, you know this is Tassajara, right? If you want to talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, you might want to do this retreat at Spirit Rock. Um, chastising me that they assumed I didn't understand the difference between Vipassana and, and Theravada. Um, and they were wrong. I do understand the difference, um, but I don't care. To me, it's um, the te teaching is from the Buddhist time that you know there's the mountaintop, the the liberation, the um, coming to awakening, um, and there are many paths to get there. And so I have this one. I'm committed to Zen practice and Mahayana Buddhism, but but to me, the others are are equally valid. And um, when I came to Zen practice 30 years, 29 years ago now. Um, I was in Massachusetts, and I did um, go to the Insight Meditation Center. I went to um, uh, Theravadan uh, uh, 
features, uh, programs, and so forth. And <clears throat> what we called it back in those days, and maybe still, it was I was a buffet Buddhist. Wherever there was a statue of the Buddha and some people being quiet, I wanted to be there. Um, and the more I learned about what quiet actually could mean versus just me not talking um, or dashing from meeting to meeting to activity to activity to event to event to, to keep the mind busy, um, the more I learned about what quiet could mean, um, the more um, it, it, it became a, um, an integral part of my life. Um, so, you know, I'm in recovery, as many of you know have heard me talk before, and in recovery, um, particularly in NA, we have a book that's called um, uh, How It Works and Why. And so for me, uh, that, was, that was an important thing to read when I first landed in that particular part of my life. Um, and it was important because I'm, I'm not blessed with a great deal of faith. Um, um, we, we talk about that here some, and certainly they talk about it in recovery. Just show up and have faith that it will work. You may not understand it, but have faith that it will work. Um, and so for me, in neither that place nor this one, did I actually, was I blessed with whatever that is, faith that it will work. Um, what I had in both places um, instead was um, the witness that um, both of those practices, but for today's purposes, the Zen practice um, was changing people's lives. I could see people having a deeper quality of life. I could see people more at peace. Um, I could see people in the midst of um, whatever joyous or not so joyous thing was going on in the world, maintaining equanimity um, and not having the outrageous highs and lows that, that I and many others were having at that time. So for me, how it worked is I wanted to learn sort of the basics, the step-by-step -step of, of what this meant. You know, show up on a Saturday or, um, and be told to, um, you know, some wonderful instructions would be given and to sit and to sit a certain way and face the wall and do all that stuff. And that seemed, that was helpful. Those were, those were tools so I would fit in after a lifetime of not being sure I fit in. Um, and so those tools were helpful, but it didn't quite, didn't quite get it. And then I, I did, in fact, go to um, a retreat at the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts um, where they were talking about the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, and for me, that was a very much uh, a turning of the Dharma wheel. Um, so the four foundations of mindfulness, uh, as folks know, um, are the teachings supposedly by the Buddha himself um, that help us, if we want to walk the path of the Buddha, these are the four things um, that we ought to do. Um, the first of those is observing the body as a body. Um, and just knowing, um, you know, what's, what's going on with our body. We now know through lots of study and, and different research that's gone on that our body can often tell us things that, that we're not thinking about. We've, we've closed off the feelings. We're not having emotions, but our body tells us. You know, body psychology and the, and the plethora. If you looked at the Tassajara calendar for the summer, almost every workshop that's there has something to do with yoga and Zen. And it's, and it's this concept, I think, of body psychology, that your, your body will tell you um, if we're observant, if we're aware of what's going on with the body, um, we get this wonderful opportunity to be enlightened about where we're blocked and where we're flowing and how we can find some balance between those things. So that, that was the first. Just um, I, I've quoted it here before, but I think it's James Joyce who in, in one of his writings talks about Mr. Kelly. Um, and he says, Mr. Kelly was a fine fellow. He lives somewhere near his body. Um, and, and I think I was, I was Mr. Kelly for a while. I was, I was constantly on the run, constantly busy, constantly taking on new projects and new activities and 
new battles with friends and family and all sorts of stuff um, to keep busy. And at some point when I got quiet, finally, the body just said, okay, so there's some other stuff you need to unpack and deal with. And, um, you know, we, we know that from trauma work and stuff. We can talk about that. The second one is feelings um, as observing the mindfulness of feelings as just feelings or as feelings. Um, and here the teaching is really not about emotions like highs and lows and all that stuff, but really it's sort of a more basic organic. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? Is it worldly or unworldly? And so you're really thinking about in terms of feelings is how do I respond to, um, how am I, uh, from a feeling standpoint, responding to, to what's going on in my life? The third one, as most people know, is mind as the mind, or in, in the traditional language, chitta. Um, which is we sometimes translate as heart-mind. Um, and it's sort of like, what is the state of our mind? What is the state of our mind? Um, are we dealing um, with, with lust? Um, are we dealing with hatred? Are we dealing with delusion? Is our mind, you know? Um, and so it's kind of the way I've heard it described once, and I may have this exactly backwards, as I frequently do, but if you think of an old drive-in movie, the mind is, or the mind is the screen, or any movie theater, the mind is the screen, and then the fourth, which is the objects of the mind, is the movie that's showing on the screen. And so what's the condition? Because it depends if the screen is tilted or shadowy or split in places, um, it's, gonna, it's going to affect how the movie shows up on the screen. So the third one, um, uh, the mind is the mind, is what's the condition of our mind? And then the fourth one, as I say, um, is the object of the mind, uh, the objects of the mind. So having mindful awareness of objects of the mind, such as the Dharma, such as, the, uh, you know, suchness, such as things exactly as they are. Um, and, and the understanding that we have that, you know, that we interact with all, every aspect of the world. Um, and so everything is constantly present. So as I was thinking about this, um, I, was, I was actually having some fun last night, um, thinking about um, uh, what, what I would talk about today. And one of the things that I became aware of is that this opportunity to study um, really depends, uh, to study ourselves, to bring mindfulness to the body and to our emotions and to our, our mind and its contents. And I was thinking of something that I use uh, with the, the children and the adults that I work with. Um, and it's a, it's a concept that we're, um, as we're looking, you know, we bring, we bring our best efforts to these four foundations of mindfulness, but it comes from a place. And so I want to, uh, when I, some people hate this when, when I do this at Dharma Talks because you're supposed to sit and be very still and quiet, but we're not going to be today. Um, and what I want you to do is there's a concept that we use. It's called um, mirror neurons. And if people know that, what the concept of a mirror neuron is if I look at Joseph um, and he makes any sort of a face, I immediately, my, my mind and brain immediately respond. Sometimes, so it's like if, if Joseph were to look um, angry, I, it would, or bored, Joseph were to look bored, I would say, oh, I recognize boredom. And I need to understand that's my recognizing it, right? Um, but there's the theory of mirror neurons is that in the minute that that happens, um, or if you um, look over and you look delighted, I recognize what delight looks like. But the minute I start that, that's an interpretation, right? So the first thing, which there's now a fair amount of science to say, the first reaction is just whatever your face, your eyes and face are showing, um, then the other person's um, eyes and face and mind are, are picking that up. So what I want you to do for a minute is I'm going to um, 
uh, just uh, use this as a tap. So I want you to turn to a person next to you, um, and I'm going to tap. And e at each tap, there'll be three. At each tap, I want you to um, just um, uh, bring to your mind uh, an emotion. So first, first um, uh, one person will do it, and, and it's going to be three. Um, and so when I tap, make a face that says, um, you know, whatever you want, fear, delight, frustrations, lust, um, uh, winning, losing, uh, boredom, anger, calm, whatever it is. So just for a second, make that face, and then I'll tap again, and then I want you to stop, take a breath, and make a second face, one of the other ones, and then stop and do a third one. So that's all we're going to do for right now. So I could be angry and then sad. So just, you know, we're going to do whatever. You choose the three you want, and don't tell the person. Just do it with your face, okay? Now what I want you to do in, in just three words is the first person that was making the faces, um, tell, tell him or her what the faces were. Just three words, what, what you saw in those three faces. <laughs> okay, so how many of you in the course of sharing that um, identified all three faces correctly? Yeah. And how many feel like you were identified correctly? What you were trying to exhibit was identified correctly. Okay. So about somewhere about almost half. So the point of that is everybody can get comfortable again. We're done. That's 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 all of the activities for today's class. Um, so so the, the idea of that is that there is all this science that says that that we have these mirror neurons, that a very basic part of us as human beings looks at another human person and knows what he or she is thinking, feeling, and experiencing. Um, and that the way we know that on this mirror neuron level is it's very biological, it's very organic, that if you're angry, I, my, I, I resonate with anger. So the job of us as children and teenagers and adults as we grow up and develop is to know that if I see anger, I don't necessarily have to be angry. I need to recognize, I recognize what that is, um, and then I either respond with anger, or I decide to respond with loving kindness, or I decide to um, you know, respond by running away, whatever it is. Um, and the point of the little exercise that we just did, that in at least half the cases um, in the room, um, we, we didn't know what it was, right? Someone made a face and brought their eyes and their, and their warmth and their cold. And our response was, oh, that's anger. And the person said to us, it's desire to get upstairs and get a cookie. Um, or that was my being really sad about the state of the world. And someone said, oh, what I was interpreting that as you were exhausted. And so the point of that is simply that, that it's, it is, as they teach us in, in the sutras, it's a mental formation. Right? From the very beginning, we have been led to believe that our biology helps us to identify with other human beings because we have recognized their emotion. And certainly, if that was ever true in this age of social media where we have constant opportunities to respond and then respond again and respond differently and, and wipe that away and respond to something else, um, there's this <coughs> opportunity for us um, in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness to say, wow, you know what? We have the body. We have the emotions, we have the condition of the mind, we have the object of the mind. It's really possible that I'm walking through life experiencing other people's pain and joy and sorrow and happiness um, and completely off the mark. Um, and there's a teaching that I love, which I've, sh I've shared before, but the expression is simply, what else is possible? So that if I look at, at uh, daddy, puppy's daddy and say, hmm, he looks angry. 
Um, it's possible um, that he's not angry. It's possible that he's not angry with me. It's possible that he's not angry at all, um, but that he's worried that the dog needs to go outside for a walk. Um, and so what happens is if, if I do that practice, which is to, to bring in the four foundations of mindfulness and say, ah, so here's what I'm experiencing, and I'm about to respond to that, or in point of fact, I probably already have, because if somebody shows up with an angry face, I probably, knowing me being just a touch codependent, I probably immediately exude um, some sunshine and warmth, whether it's you know real, real or <laughs> real or oh, let me fix that for you. Um, but we so we do that, and what we get the opportunity to do through our practice, which is a compassion practice and a wisdom practice, is to say, okay, what's really going on, and what else is possible. So if I look at you with the basic science of mirror neurons, and I think I know what you're thinking, um, but in fact I don't um, necessarily, um, and my, my physiology wants to respond to your physiology because that's what the mirror, mirror neurons do, um, and now we know, years and years of research later, um, that, you know, that that's not necessarily um, the situation, that, that uh, other things are possible. So Thich Nhat Hanh says that um, relying on the four foundations of mindfulness um, allows us to put an end um, to the hindrances and to overcome um, whatever weakens our ability to be awakened, to live in Sangha, to be, um, to be uh, together with each other on the path of the Buddha. So the five hindrances, um, uh, first one is desire. Um, and if you think about it, like we all have desires, right? Um, I said cookie a few minutes ago, and at least one person in this room is now thinking about cookies. Um, <laughs> maybe some others. Um, and so the, and, you know, the desire um, can, can take over a lot of our lives. The desire to be outside, the desire to get out of the outside when it's too cold or too wet, desire to go to work on Monday, the desire to get away from work on Monday or Friday. There are lots and lots of desires and sensual desires and, you know, and, and so those can be hindrances to us as we're trying to have a meditation practice, as we're trying to walk in the world um, from a place of wisdom and compassion. The hindrance of desire can really interrupt that flow, right? Um, if someone shows up with an angry face, um, I may have the desire to get as far away from them as possible rather than stand still and figure out how I can be present for that person. So when we do meditation, one of the meditations that most many people have already practiced is something called a body scan, which we're not going to do today. But, but the body scan is simply where you just notice your body. What's starting at the top of your head and moving all the way down um, through your foot on one side and up and down to the foot on the other side. And you're noticing where there's tension, where things are tight, um, where there might be some uncomfortableness. And you just notice it. And that's all you, and, and if we're sitting in meditation or if we've sat in meditation at a retreat for two hours, and now we're doing a body scan and it's like, hmm, I'm in this peaceful place. I've had a nice cup of tea and now we're sitting in a, I had a nice cup of tea and a good breakfast. Now we're sitting. I should be really, really happy and contented. And yet my shoulders all tight. My jawline is whatever. My, my, the horror, my, my middle region is doing something. Um, and so it's like, hmm, okay. So you do this body meditation and you just get a chance to say, all right, so something's going on. Something's going on and as I sit, um, in meditation and as I walk through the rest of my day, I get a chance to say, hmm, let me, let me figure out what that is um, and see if there's a way to loosen that, see if there's a way to respond to whatever it is that's going on differently. Um, another of the hindrances is anger, which we've all felt. 
Um, and we know that we have in our meditation practices a loving-kindness meditation and some other versions of that. Um, and loving-kindness meditation simply says that if I'm anger, angry, I have a belief, I don't know about you, but if I'm angry, it's not doing me any good either. It's burning up, it's burning up my brain and burning up my heart. And, and so I don't really want to walk around the world being angry, um, even though sometimes anger is justifiable. You know, people do things and anger is an appropriate response, but I don't want to walk around carrying that. And so if I do loving kindness meditation, I start by saying, I'm going to bring love to myself. I'm going to um, bring love inwards and, and see how I can better take care of myself. And then I'm going to begin the circle of taking love to you and to you and to the people out there. And so we begin that practice, which, uh, which has the capacity um, to diminish those feelings of anger and burning that, that we experience. Um, sloth and toper are the next of the hindrances. Um, and basically what we do with sloth and toper is you're getting stiff or you're, you know, you're, you're not wanting to do the post the, the, whatever it is in life. And meditation is a wonderful place to work on that because there's a way we're supposed to sit, which does not include having this legs over here, but you know, it's all right. It's going to be there for a minute. Um, but there's a way we sit and those who came for instructions this morning, there's a way we enter the room and there's a way we sit and there's a way we bow and there's a way we chant. And the reason for all of that um, is that we can go back to that, right? When we find ourselves being distracted, we can say, ah, now I'm being distracted, so I can go back to that. Some people, when they're um, meditating, they count the breaths, and they count breathing in and breathing out one, breathing in, breathing out two. And for some people, that's very helpful in terms of focusing on the breath. For other people, it's a complete distraction. And so you just get a chance to remember that it's the breathing. It's the focus, single focus on the breathing. Um, that's important to us. Um, worry is the other one, and you know, worry tends to make us antsy and fidgety, and again, with meditation, we get this wonderful opportunity to concentrate on our body at rest, our body connected to the earth, and, and, um, and our breathing. Um, and then the final one is skepticism or doubt. And in our, in our Zen practice, um, and in most Buddhist lineages, we have this wonderful opportunity to study, to come to talks, to have a teacher, um, to, to really get these opportunities. And so if I'm feeling at all skeptical, I get an opportunity to say, okay, so I'm curious or doubtful about that. Let me talk to somebody else. And I may still be um, doubtful. So there's a wonderful story that I was reading um, that some of you probably heard before, um, and it is from a Theravadan tradition, um, and it talks about um, the elephant. Folks know the story of the elephant, perhaps. Um, but in, in, in those ancient times, um, they were thinking of the mind. You could compare it to a, a wild elephant. And so a trained elephant back in those days um, could be incredibly useful for carrying things and moving things, etc. But a wild elephant um, could simply run all over the place bumping into things and could be quite dangerous, therefore. Um, and so the ancient teaching said, just think about taming your mind the same way we think about taming an elephant. And so the first thing is you somehow have to catch it, right? And we're the size we are, and you're thinking about an elephant, it's like, mm, got to catch that. And the same with our mind. For most of us, when we first come here or on a daily basis or whatever, when we start to think about meditation is going to give me an opportunity to really uh, be in touch with my mind heart, my body mind. And, and so, but it's how to catch that because our mind is watching television, our mind is paying bills, our mind is working, our mind is, uh, you know, dealing with our family, our mind is trying to figure out all the, the aspects of daily life. So how do we catch it? 
and and meditation the four foundations of mindfulness the meditation practice is a really good way to find some calmness and to get have an opportunity to be present with the mind in a way that we can then work with it so the second thing um, in training the the elephant um, is to um, chain it to a stake that was the way they trained elephants back in those days excuse me puppies we're not chaining you to any stakes um, but that was the way they trained and so the idea was that in, in the beginning the elephant would struggle against the chain and would walk as far as it could and and always according to the ancient teaching um, the elephant would have to come back to where the stake was to ease the pressure on its neck from the from the tie and all that sort of thing so it would eventually come back and over time as it was trained it would know that if it stayed close to its central place if it stayed close to the central training um, that that would be a better place for it to be so eventually the elephant starts to settle down near the stake and begins to be more calm not trying to break the rope or the chain and not trying to run away um, and eventually um, is able to settle um, and then the ancient teaching says that at that point um, the elephant would be more useful um, because it is calm and it has, um, it has this capacity um, now to be around humans um, without being freaked out and so forth and so on. Um, and so that's a teaching. And, and as I said, just on behalf of animal lovers everywhere, um, that's a couple thousand year old teaching when that was in fact how we trained elephants. And so we can, we can sort of interpret it as a piece of history and not be thinking about chaining things and, and uh, you know, whatever else they did to get that elephant to stay by the stake in the beginning. So it's just, it's just an analogy. So for those of us who are animal lovers, um, we can, I think, still work with that. Um, but you know, in, in um, Vipassana, you begin with that stake, right? And the stake is an object, an object of meditation. And so in the beginning, there are lots of objects of meditation. People have words that they say, people have, um, some people will light a candle, um, some people have a particular picture they look at, um, all those kinds of things. Um, but in almost all lineages, and certainly what I was attracted to here, is that it is the breath. The breath is the thing that, that is our object. And of course in Zen we do objectless meditation, so we're not actually focusing on something. It is for us this concept of, of in fact, not focusing. Um, but, but, you know, in order to learn meditation, in order to get to that practice, um, um, we, we focus on the breath as well. And so we use the breath, um, again, so that we notice when we're being distracted and we can come back. We notice when thoughts are arising and we cannot get attached to them, just let them come and let them go. Um, and so we do this objectless meditation, but really we're using the breath um, as, as a focus, if not an object. And so I was reading on Zen Studies online Sangha, and a guy, person named Domyo says, um, instead of seeing our mind as a garden in Zen, instead of, instead of seeing our mind as a garden to be actively tended and cultivated, which might be um, in some of the other lineage, um, in, in Zen, we tend to see our mind as being like a pond full of muddy water. If we can just sit still, the mud settles, and out of the water, we can see clearly. In terms of that ancient elephant, you might say, um, if you were doing it from a Zen perspective, something like this, um, that you would just sit in the forest until the wild elephant gets used to you um, and naturally becomes tamed without a big struggle. You would believe um, and come, come to know that you and the elephant are really meant to work together and that at some level you are drawn to each other. And so that's, I think, for me, a really, a really helpful um, uh, 
uh, way of thinking about, about that concept um, and how we, how we use meditation, the four foundations of mindfulness, the uh, foundation um, uh, in our meditation practice. But for me, there was one other real reason that I was drawn to Zen practice. Um, and um, after years of being a buffet Buddhist and going from place to place and learning as much as I could and practicing lots of things, um, I came to understand that Zen has a different view um, of human nature than the Theravada does, at least the way I work with it and experience it. Um, in Theravada, my experience of the teachings that I received there was that our minds and bodies um, were more or, less, more or less um neutral ground into, we, either, into which either good or bad seeds could sprout and grow. So our minds were um, essentially neutral, and it was up to us to plant seeds and nurture the seeds and so forth. Um, and what kind of garden you have is up to you. My experience when I came to Zen is that um, we have a, a tendency towards the good. So if we can only see, um, we can, if only we could see through our delusions. So we don't think, in my experience, that it's neutral. Um, we are inclined um, to think that our body, minds, and, and our experience um, uh, is, is um, a belief in the enduring, inherent, and, and, uh, and separate self um, as a way um, to say, if we can see through those delusions, the delusions of an enduring, inherent, separate self, then we get back to um, the place that's basically good. Our true nature can be manifested, the Buddha said you know, that original nature that we talk about. Um, so our meditation is more about letting go of doing rather than the practices where it's busy focusing on, um, on actually changing something, doing something, um, reaching nirvana, climbing over the wall into nirvana um, by ourselves and, and um, being in the awakened, liberated place. So for us, of course, um, we believe in the basic good um, we believe that if we can get rid of delusion, we will operate from that. From that, we'll, uh, um, we will be able to arouse um, our capacity for kindness and wisdom and, and connectedness. Um, and so I think um, that that really, for me, was a big difference. That this notion that we're basically good, because I had grown up in a world that where I didn't think I was basically good or whole or um, relevant or fixable. Um, and so. So I just think that, um, for me, this, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness allowed me to get back to that place of saying, it's not like in other faiths where there's original sin and you spend the rest of your life trying to make up for original sin. Um, or that um, you're going to plant this garden and you really have to work hard to plant the seeds in the garden so the right things grow. Um, what we're basically saying, in my experience, is we have this capacity um, to, to arouse our compassion and to arouse our wisdom and if we let go of delusion and let go of the notion that, that we are a permanent, separate self, um, that life, life gets much better. And so um, I think that um, that uh, really is helpful to me, and I, and I hope to you. Um, I was reading Sylvia Bornstein, who's from Spirit Rock, actually, um, and she was writing in this, this month's Lion's Roar, and she goes on to the next, which is Wise Intention. Um, after talking a little bit about, um, about what we've been talking about. And she says, um, wise intention is what keeps our life headed in the right direction. If you want to drive north, she says, you simply look for the sun to be setting on your left. Um, wise intention is like checking our sun, making sure our lives are going in the direction we want. Are our intentions in line with our skillful and wholehearted right, right view? Um, and then as we look to our efforts, um, do we see that our actions are wholehearted and skillful? 
So last night, um, on Friday night here, we have a meeting called Meditation and Recovery. And we had a discussion. Um, where's the instigator? He's here today. Um, we had a discussion about what's going on in the world, and particularly in our country, and particularly this week. Um, I say instigator with, with kindness and love, because it was a great conversation. Um, but there were a lot of people expressing fear and anger um, and frustration and a fair amount of folks actually discussing despair um, about the news and what's going on um, in the country. Um, you know, with the impeachment sputtering to an end, the Democrats unable to manage a primary election, much less a country perhaps. Um, the coronavirus, um, um, for a couple of the people that were here last night, the 49ers, mysterious loss in that big football game last week. Um, and, and for the rest of us, the nation's reactions to Jennifer Lopez dancing on a pole. Because I didn't see the football game, but I did see that. Um, so there are many things, um, as there always are, that, um, that people were responding to. Um, and, you know, I think, I think what happens is that we can say, oh, wow, I'm really locked down. Um, my body, my mind, my emotions, my mind, my, the objects of my mind. So for me in Zen, as I understand and practice it, we emphasize the fact um, that critical insights um, uh, result in spiritual liberation and that they arise from a calm, clear mind. So if I can't do anything about the, those ten, the coronavirus, let's just pick that one. Um, if I can't do anything about coronavirus at the moment, I could be really scared. If I have to go to the airport, or if I have friends coming from the airport, or you know, um, that, that you just could naturally be scared about that. Um, so rather than get into discursive thinking and wondering why the health departments aren't doing enough stuff and why you know uh, the the amount of profiling and racism that's playing out and how people um, are protected from or worried about um, that particular virus, um, and then in the midst of all that, we have you know our government doing whatever it's doing. Um, and, and, you know, the, there's the, when they should be worried about health and providing our really excellent Centers for Disease Control prevention techniques, we're busy um, having all this internal stuff going on. So for me, um, I chose not to watch any of the um, impeachment stuff at all. That was just a choice for me. It's not right or wrong. It just was better for my um, heart and mind. Um, and I also wasn't paying much attention on Tuesday. I was actually doing a writing project for something else. And so a little right around midnight, when evidently everybody else in the whole country was consumed with impeachment and the Iowa malfunction, um, I turned on the TV, and there was Pete Buttigieg. And he was declaring victory. Um, and he was saying how it's who ever would have imagined 15 years ago that a little guy from rural Indiana, and I'm sure if you live in South, whatever that city is, you don't think it's rural, but it's rural to us, right? But he, he was saying that a person from his generation who desperately tried to feel connected, to feel safe, to feel like he fit in, and to wonder every day of his life if he would be relevant, if he would find a way to serve um, in the military or whatever it was that each person wanted to do, um, or in a leadership role, and didn't believe that he could. And now here he was standing in front of these cameras um, saying that he had, in fact, as an openly gay man, won the first primary in, in the group. And he said the most important thing, whatever happens, um, in the rest of the campaign, because I suspect he, like the rest of us, think he's um, an interesting, wonderful candidate, but that doesn't seem destined to end up in the White House, it seems to me. But, but what he said was, whatever happens, there are now little girls and little boys all across the country who can say, for this day, um, that it is possible, and that that's how change happens, that it is possible. And so 
So I was um, listening to that and thinking, wow, so in the midst of all of this other stuff, if you just stop and, and, and are open to what's going on, here's this example of the world has just changed a little bit. The Dharma wheel has turned. There's a little more liberation in the world. There's a tiny bit more safety in the world. Um, and, and the fact, yeah. And so, so that to me was just this wonderful opportunity to say in the midst of all this chaos, here's this guy talking about, and he's a politician, so he certainly talked about himself a lot. I didn't listen to any of that either. But he talked about what this, about what this would mean for little kids and for children across the country. Um, um, and so, so that seemed to me to be really profound. And so being here um, with all of you and affirming our dedication to lead lives um, that are skillful and compassionate and wise is the reason we come here to meditate because we want to have that opportunity to get um, the four foundations of mindfulness sort of stacked up. What's going on with our body? How is that leading us to be in the world? What's going on with our emotions? How are they leading us to be in the world? What's the condition of our mind? How are we going to intake, in, intake data and output data? Um, and then what's the con what are the conditions, the objects of the mind that are flowing to us and um, do we have some capacity to move out of the way? You know, it's still flowing. John Kabat-Zinn says, we can't stop the waves, but we can teach you to surf. So it's still flowing, but it, what's our capacity to move out of the way of some of it or not to get hooked on it? So last night, um, in closing, there was a, a guy, young young person who, who um, was here, um, and he said that, you know, we do in fact, um, and he was speaking of himself, live in an endless news cycle, live in an endless cycle of fear and anger and hostility. Um, and he said that that can be really overwhelming and that can be cause him to sort of shut down a little bit. And he said, then he realized through his teacher, and I don't know who that is, um, and through his meditation practice, um, that what he gets to do, he can't fight the whole world, although he stays active, and he can't stamp out uh, the coronavirus, although he's committed to working on that. So he can't do any of that stuff. But what he can do, and what he feels confident about, and where his foundations of mindfulness are, um, is, is that he shows up for his meditation practice. And he meditates on a regular basis so that um, he has calm abiding, so that he arouses his Buddha nature. And so he's in the world, <clears throat> both calmer and with Buddha nature. And he says that by showing up as his original self, by showing up as a meditator, as a Buddhist, um, by showing up that way in the world, he has an opportunity not to stop all those cycles, but to interrupt them for just a bit. So for the 20 minutes that we're meditating, for the hour that we spend together meditating and talking, um, we have the opportunity to interrupt that cycle just a bit. We're not operating in fear in this room. We're not operating in anger in this room. Um, we're not assuming that we know what other people are thinking in this room. We are allowing everyone um, to be in meditative um, repose, meditative pose. And that just by showing up, we, we, we state over and over again every Saturday or every time we do this, we state our dedication and our, uh, to and our belief in a life that is um, possible, a life with meditation as its center, a life with loving kindness as one of its tools. We get this opportunity to say, it's not enough, I get the opportunity and I hope you do, not enough to say I'm frustrated and I'm afraid and I'm angry and I'm overwhelmed by what's going on in, in the world order. Um, I get a chance instead to say, hmm, you know what? As a meditator, I get a chance to be a little more peaceful. And if I'm a little more peaceful, the people around me experience more peace. Um, and I get a chance to be a little more thoughtful. And if I'm more thoughtful, it gives other people the, the space to be a little more thoughtful as well. Um, so I think that 
the four foundations of mindfulness really describe at a very basic level how we begin this practice. And then there are many ways to pursue. And for me and for those of us here, um, the Zen practice is the one um, that, that we pursue. And for me, it's the bodhisattva vow, right? It's that I'm not in this alone, that we are um, determined not to reach nirvana until we have made, made it possible for all people to remember and to know that we all have capacity to reach nirvana um, and that no one of us is going to go jumping over the wall um, while everybody else is trying to climb. And so that to me is the importance of the Zen practice. And I think when we do that um, and when we hold that and when we appreciate our meditation um, and the foundations of that mindfulness, um, we have an opportunity um, to look at each other and to know we're interrupting that cycle. You know, we are in fact changing the world one mind at a time. Thank you.